This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Dragons and Apocalypses. High Frequency Trades of Carcosa. And my New England Bookshelf Raid. Part 2. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm. So say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon, a quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh, yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The soft feel of polycotton and the desperate flop sweat of people trying to sell polycotton mean it must be time again for the t-shirt justification hut. And today we're justifying the foxy dragon t-shirt worn by Cognoscenti really throughout the land, Robin. That's my understanding of, of the foxy dragon shirt, but they don't want to wear it unless it's justified, which is a legitimate choice. And since you plucked the foxy dragon from a well i don't know what you plucked it from it looks like a medieval illuminated manuscript yes it's it's like a 11th century medieval illuminated manuscript however i plucked it in order to turn it into a meme uh, which of course is a riff on the recent uh, Anakin and Natalie Portman meme, it's like a four-panel. I love, I love how everyone calls it the Anakin and Natalie Portman meme. Like we won't even insult her by calling it a Padme meme. Exactly. <laughs> but I, I cropped it just enough and didn't save the original that I couldn't do an image search. But oh. trust us, trust us when we say this is from an illuminated manuscript, and it looks like a, a four-panel joke gag. So that's what I turned it into. Uh, beloved Patreon backer Kevin Greenley, when he saw it, said, "Can this be a shirt?" To which I thought to myself. This isn't going to read as a shirt. It's not even going to read on a mug. But the dragon who appears in panel three to menace the monks who appear in the other panels, or rather the saints, because they've got the, the halos over their heads. Yep. Well, they might be monks and saints. I'm guessing they're apostles of some sort. Uh, but anyway, a dragon comes along, menaces the monks. And in the original, holiness ensues. And in my version, hilarity ensued. But the dragon himself is pretty darn cool looking. Yeah. It's got sort of like a, a foxy head, hence the name. Not that he's alluring, although I'm not insulting him on that front. Look, uh, but look, don't shame, cool Robin. If, if people are allured by that dragon, then let them. That's what I say. Yes. You can feel however you want. But also he has sort of a cool fox head. And then he's uh, got a snake body. So he's sort of a, a wyvern. Uh, if we're trying to vamp for more time, which probably we don't have to do. We could go into the whole wyvern dragon dichotomy. And there's a cool sense of movement to the uh, to the dragon. So we know that that 11th century cartoonist was having fun drawing this dragon. I'm sure he'll be very excited to know that we're 
uh, putting them on a shirt uh, where everyone can enjoy it. But, you know, as as you stated already, we, we can't just release a shirt without some sort of justification. And if it's not named after an episode title, we have to uh, find something to say on the show about it. And can, can we possibly find anything to say on a show about tabletop role-playing games about dragons? I, is, I, is this a topic? Seems like a reach, Robin. Seems like a reach. So it seems like this is a, a dragon of some sort of apocalypse uh, going on. And it turns out, Ken, that dragons and apocalypses have a lot to do with each other because I think in the, the D&D dragon definitely uh, largely descends from Smaug and the Hobbit. And thus, uh, I think he's come down a little bit in the world when we encounter him in, in role-playing. Uh, yeah. In, uh, part to make him a monster you can possibly defeat and take the treasure of. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think Smog sitting on his pile of treasure, uh, sitting there talking like George Sanders, is uh, sort of our, our image of the dragon that has come down into role-playing. But dragons can, as you've uh, discovered, are an even bigger deal than that. They're on, on a cosmic scale. And the role-playing certainly has evil god dragons. It turns out that uh, a lot of dragons, especially from the Middle East and Europe, they're trying to blow up the world. They are. They're trying to end us. Yep. They're big. They're big problems. The uh, people who study Indo-European, and I include both dodgy folks in the Victorian era and weirdos now and proper professors now, they tend to coalesce around the notion that there is a sort of a Indo-European story that becomes an Ur-myth called, because it was a German who came up with it, the Chaos Kampf, the war against chaos. And that at the beginning of recorded history or created time, the hero or god fights a dragon. And basically the prize is uh, either cattle or women, depending on which part of the Indo-European mythology you're at. But oh, and, and one leads to the other. Right. And the prize is basically... Um, yeah, you got to have someone look after the cattle, for goodness sake. You're you, you, all tuckered you need a dowry out. Exactly. You want to get a prestigious bride. Right. And then so the, the notion is that the dragon, the great serpent, represents chaos, and they are building the uh, created human livable world by defeating it. And that is, for example, Apollo versus Python or Zeus versus Typhon in Greece, Indra versus Vritra in India, uh, Tarhunt versus Ilyanka from the Hittite lore, Faridun versus Dahak in Persian lore. The pattern also appears in the Near East. I don't know, but it looks like it predates the Indo-European eruption into the Near East, which is an interesting question. But you have Baal versus Lotan in uh, Phoenicia and Syria. You have Yahweh, our, our buddy, my buddy, Yahweh versus Leviathan. And then, depending on which era of Mesopotamian god you're talking about, it's either Anu or Enlil or Marduk versus Tiamat, speaking of Dungeons and Dragons gods. Uh, and in all those cases, the dragon is defeated and their body or their treasure or the things they were guarding are used to create the world. And this seems to be a pretty widespread myth in that area, obviously in China and uh and Korea and Vietnam, dragons are just cool. They just hang out. There's no apocalypses at all. There, there are friendly pals over there. Exactly. The Japanese do have an apocalyptic worm fight 
Susano Naoko goes after a giant worm, but people are like, maybe they got that from Siberian contacts via the Ainu. We don't know. And it's, and the, the worm's not really dragony by that point. He's just sort of a big, creepy, horrible worm. Different issue. But in addition to that sort of overlay, we also have a possible case out of Egypt. And I say possible because Wikipedia will tell you right with a straight face that this is in the pyramid texts. Now, I did not read all of the pyramid texts because I have a limit, but I read one of the big pyramid texts and it's not in that one, the pyramid text of Unas. But they say, and two reputable sources agree with Wikipedia, Rutledge uh, Encyclopedia and uh, Wilkinson's Encyclopedia, both say that Denwen is a sort of a fiery serpent who threatens all of the gods, basically that threatens to burn up the heavens. And the Pharaoh stops him, and that's why the Pharaoh gets to go on to heaven, because when Pharaoh was on Earth, he stopped Denwen. And that is a sort of a ritual combat of the king versus the god, which is very similar, obviously, if you're familiar to Anu Enlil Marduk versus Tiamat, because, again, that is the justification of kingship, is, is what that myth does in Mesopotamia. So we have a maybe Egyptian tie-in to this Mesopotamian thing. Again, I leave a question mark on it until I see it in the actual pyramid text. But if so, that, like I say, that predates Indo-European eruption into Egypt, certainly. And it uh, maybe comes via Mesopotamia. But you're not here to talk about a bunch of nonsense and possible pyramid texts. Robin, you're here to talk about the end of the world. Right. Uh, because it, it implies uh, that if if the dragon, the original fight with the dragon creates the world, if the dragon is the material of the world, that uh, gives us. Uh, you know, we we're we're not looking at these stories from the dragon's perspective. We are not. We're we're happy that Apollo or Indra or Tarhunt or Enu uh, created the world for us to uh, hang around in and harvest barley and drink beer and all of those wonderful things. But the from the dragon point of view, this is a problem that you have been uh, dismembered and turned into the world, and either you are sitting there as part of what turns out to be the the corrupt world, or uh, possibly your descendants are going, hey. Wait a minute. We want to go back to being dragons. We want to stop being the world. Let's end this stupid world. And I guess that brings us, Ken, to Ragnarok, of which you have uh, some expertise. A little bit. Yeah. Uh, Ragnarok is a legend that is certainly was present in the Norse culture cycle, cultural area. Uh, it shows up in the Voluspa, which is the oldest version of Ragnarok we have, which is probably from the 10th century, maybe earlier. That's when we first see the first uh, physical art depicting Ragnarok. Annoyingly to Viking pagan type guys, that art is often on the back of a giant cross that was assembled. And the <laughs> Voluspa has some similarities to a Germanic language or uh, old German language book about uh, the end of the world called Muspeli, which is a Christian text. And it's a retelling of the book of Revelation, not to get ahead of ourselves. Um, so the question is, to what extent is Ragnarok a Christianization of the original sort of proto-Norse final battle myth? Because all of these Indo-European 
warrior cultures have a sort of a final battle, which you again see in the Bible in uh, Armageddon, where uh, there's going to be a big dust up at the end of time and the good guys are going to fight the bad guys. Yeah. Turns out the Bible is also a reboot. It, it turns out. Um, so Ragnarok, uh, in Ragnarok, however, the dragon is uh, not a dragon per se. He's a gigantic sea serpent named the Midgard Serpent or Jormungandr, if you prefer. Thor kills him in a myth where Thor fishes him out with an ox and when he tries to pull him onto the boat, it nearly capsizes the world. So Thor just smashes Jormungandr in the head with his hammer and Jormungandr sinks below the waves. And then, you know, to set it up for Ragnarok, people are like, maybe he's not dead. Maybe there's a sequel coming. So in the sequel, uh, Jormungandr once more awakens, uh, goes after Thor. Uh, Thor again kills him. But in this case, uh, he's killed by the poison. And so that's sort of the end of the world. Thor versus the and, Great and this Serpent. is typical Thor pre-planning. Exactly. This is how, this is why you, you really want Vidar on your side, not Thor uh, in the end of the world, not least because I think Vidar survives. And then, so this is a, as I say, it's a, uh, possibly a Christianized version of the generic Valhalla, which is, you know, not the end of time, just the end of you, the warrior, you go off and you fight forever. And, the notion, in fact, of cyclical time of the world having a beginning and an ending may have been invented as late as the second century BC, because it doesn't seem to appear anywhere until the book of Daniel in the Bible. And the book of Daniel was written because the Jews of uh, Judea were super angry at the Seleucids who had invented the the continuing calendar just a little uh, like like a hundred years before that and i'm also mad at them for inventing the calendar there's a lot of reasons to be mad at the silly kids this is a good one and the jews said oh your calendar continues no it doesn't first of all our calendar's older we're making up a number that's much bigger than your number second of all the world's going to end and the prophet daniel will tell you all about it and guess who gets stomped in it the silly kids that's right and so the Jewish apocalyptic tradition that comes out of the book of Daniel has its flowering. And I think we can say that both theologically and uh, literarily in the book of Revelation written by our buddy St. John of Patmos, who may or may not have been the Apostle John. Not really relevant to this question. About 100 AD, you can see dates going as late as 130 AD, but this is the big one. This is the big dog. This is the Star Wars of dragon versus everybody apocalypses that everyone rips off afterwards. Right. And of course, this is the dragon becoming becoming Satan. Right. Or identified as Satan. Satan becoming yes. the dragon, however you want to put yeah. it. So, right. Yeah. So that if you are evoking a genuinely medieval worldview in your uh, fantasy gaming, again, this is something that you uh, would do is that he's he, he's the big he's the big S. Yeah. And uh, Tiamat is lawful evil because in the D&D cosmology, devils are uh, lawful evil. They're, uh, they like the hierarchy. They want everything to keep going. But uh, I, I think that, uh, that Satanist dragon is, is beyond the mere law versus chaos uh, divide. And, uh, and probably wants to destroy the world. Yeah. That'd be my guess. I mean, obviously, OG Tiamat was chaotic evil because she literally was chaos, but that's neither here nor there. Um, yeah, Satan is Satan is all the evil. And you could, you know, sort of separate him out like D&D does. So you've got your Asmodeus and your Beelzebub and your Orcus and your whatever, and they're all little bits, excrusions, archangels of Satan or uh, avatars, if you want to go that way. But either way, this is the big dragon. 
great fiery red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And that's numerology because John is not mad at the Seleucids. They went away. He's mad at the Romans. So that's his beef with the Romans. And so seven heads, seven hills of Rome, ten horns. The argument is that that's the ten Caesars up until when John was writing. But don't worry. The dragon fails to stop the woman clothed with the sun. She flies away into the desert. Ha ha. Take that. He fights Archangel Michael and loses. And then the dragon casts water out of his mouth as a flood, which the earth drinks up. He then goes down to the sea and calls up the beast, who is not the dragon, different guy, and the Antichrist, who is not the beast, different guy, unless they're all the same guy, because Book of Revelation, (laughs) people have literally killed each other over interpreting this, so we're not really going to drill that deep. But at the end of it all, um, he's chained up in the abyss by an angel. Then he's released after a thousand years to lead a war of Gog and Magog against the saints. And then he's destroyed by fire and he's cast into hell forever and ever. The end. Goodbye, dragon. And what this is, you can see, is a lot of different apocalypses all being added into this one. So I said it was Star Wars. This is really, it's both the Star Wars and the terrible tacked on studio insisted sequel ending of star wars because they're like oh what if they've well, let's add armageddon to it let's do everything well in, in both cases they didn't work out the whole story arc in advance they, they they did not and again there's questions about does the dragon's appearance is that a prophecy or is it history is the war in heaven going to happen or has it already happened when is the war of gog and magog viz the antichrist because if you just read the book in order, it's a thousand years after the Antichrist, we have the War of Gog and Magog, but obviously your AM radio preachers don't like that. They want all the fun stuff to happen at the same time, Avengers Endgame style. So that is the bolus of revealed, possibly mushroom-assisted uh, prophecy that John of Patmos has left us and therefore left all of Western culture. And again, you see the ec- another echo of that is in the Zoroastrian apocalypse, the Frasho Kareti, which basically means the making new of the world. And the Zoroastrians began without an apocalypse. They didn't need one. They were pre-Seleucids. They also hated the Seleucids, by the way, as, as it happened. <laughs> but it wasn't the calendar or something else. <laughs> right. it, was, it was being conquered by the Seleucids. And they had a commentary on the Avesta called the Sudgar Nask, which is lost, probably comes out of the 6th century, but it could be even earlier. The only way we know about it is it's summarized in a book of commentaries on the Avesta called the Den Card, which is from the 10th century, which is coincidentally enough, also Ragnarok time. So something in the 10th century has got people thinking about the end of the world. You'd think maybe it's just because we're all numbering up to the year 1000. It's going to scare everybody, but the Persians weren't numbering up to the year 1000. They had their own calendar. But anyway, at this point, the hero king Garshasp, who is the last great hero of of the sort of the mythic Persian, he's sort of like Persian King Arthur. He's resurrected at the end of the world and he kills the dragon Dayhawk. And Dayhawk has three heads. And the first time he was killed, uh, and you remember all the way back, we talked about Feridun. Uh, Feridun kills him, and he's about to just chop him up into bits, but he notices that serpents and poisonous vermin keep coming out of the body, and if he chopped him up into bits, he'd spread them all over the world, and it'd be disgusting, and so he just buries him in a mountain and says, that's good enough. We'll bury him in Mount Demavend. Problem solved. But of course, at the end of time, Dahak comes out of Mount Demavend, just like uh, Ghidorah, King of Monsters, and uh, goes after Garshasp, and Garshasp takes him down. So that is your your big apocalypses, right? You've got your your sort of the 
the proto story that gets remade because the, the, the Jews invent cyclical time in the book of Daniel. Then you've got sort of the, 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 the big Christian remake. And then you've got two remakes of the remake with Frasho, Caretti and Ragnarok, both coincidentally in the 10th century. So to bring this back into gaming, you may not want to have your dragons just hanging around uh, waiting to have their treasure stolen. One famous uh, role-playing fantasy world that does make dragons uh, cosmic in scope is, uh, of course, Glorantha, where uh, Greg Stafford made sure, first of all, there's a culture hero legend in which the uh, often the main hero god, Orlamp, uh, fights a dragon, Aroka, who is also the sea, and that ties into taming uh, the seas and the rivers. But the dragons in this world are literally gigantic. They're as large as uh, mountain ranges. And every so often, humanity annoys them sufficiently for them to create a little mini apocalypse, uh, as they do at one point and rise from the mountains and destroy this entire culture of people who are perverting dragon magic. And there's also the suggestion that uh, the coming uh, end times uh, will also involve invoking a dragon uh, and uh, possibly not invoking it in Greg's moral system. It is about the difference between true mysticism and attempting to muck with cosmic understanding for your own uh, selfish benefit. But this suggests that in uh, your games, you might want to think about uh, possibly, you know, treating the uh, dragons as your big bad and having them uh, wanting to do more than just sort of accumulate treasure. But in fact, they're all organizing for the big uh, final war. And if you're playing a game like 13th Age, where you just there's a certain level where you reach that final battle, the big thing at the end before you uh, restart with other characters or move on to another game. There's a great gold worm in that. There's other dragons that you want uh, might want to not mess with it. And uh, you might want to think about, uh, you know, bringing the dragons back to their original cosmic scope of trying to undo the world entirely in order to regain their freedom and become full uh, dragons again, rather than allowing just the uh, cosmic cycle to tick over again and have them trapped again for another age or cycle, being stuck being the Earth again, which, uh, as we've covered already, is annoying. Yeah, and people walk on you. It's not good. Yeah, the uh, obviously my prejudices are that the bigger the religious awe that people hold dragons in, the better the story, and that can be true in the most absolutely conventional of D&D games, just, you know, add some worshipers to the dragon, add an apocalyptic cult that is as badly behaved as all apocalyptic cults turn out to be. They're the sons of the dragon and the, or the heirs of the dragon, and they run around and they cause problems and they replicate, if you wish, if you will, uh, the chaos that heroes have to stop to make the world safe for cattle and women. And uh, the notion of your heroes recapitulating that will add a little mythic bite to your game and then it's going to be a better story if the dragon has an effect on the world that is not merely limiting the money supply, which is basically what dragons do. Uh, they're, they're not really anything in D&D except that they act as circuit breakers on, on inflation, which not that that's a bad thing, but it seems a <laughs> so, little so basically the, pedestrian, the Fed right? Yeah. Of, dragons of, of the, the Federal Reserve, world. which yeah. in another way, you know. Who can say that at the end of times, we won't all be fighting the Federal Reserve and hope that Thor has um, uh, slept it off and can come help us? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the takeaways here are, uh, one, make dragons more cosmic. Two, prevent Ragnarok by heading to the Ken and Robin shop at Tee Public and checking out the foxy dragon and possibly adding him to your closet or your uh, shelf where you keep your mugs. Uh, and on that note, I think it's time for us to head on over and see what other 
hut lurks on the other side of the end of the world. You listen to the show. You have the Pelgrane greatest hits. But do you have the deep cuts? From now until Monday, September 6th, you can pick up the Pelgrane deep cut PDF bundle from the Pelgrane shop. At a deep cut price. It includes Skullduggery, the role-playing game of verbal fireworks and sudden reversals. The Gaian Reach, the role-playing game of interstellar vengeance. Its companion, the Gaian Reach Gazetteer, an exhaustive cataloging of the planets and places of Jack Vance's classic science fiction. Cycle. Owl Hoot Trail, a gritty Clint Eastwood Western set in a hostile fantasy world where the outlaw on the other side of the gulch might be a one-eyed half-elf or ornery Catobalpus. And Lorefinder, merging the action-oriented fantasy rules of the Pathfinder role-playing game with the mystery-solving investigative elegance of Gumshoe. Round them up together, buckaroos. And Space Machiavellians. And Mighty Food Detectives. For a deep cut of 25% off. That's Skullduggery, The Guy in Reach, The Guy in Reach Gazetteer, Owlahoot Trail, and Lorefinder. All together at the Pelgrain Shop at PelgrainPress.com. It's time once again, and by once again, I mean for the first time ever, for the Money Hut. And you may ask, why haven't you had a Money Hut before? And the answer is, we write role-playing games for a living. <laughs> what kind of horribly mean question we're, is that? We're, we're barely acquainted we're with money. We're barely acquainted with money. We, If we have a small change hut, we're ready yeah. for that one. I- index funds, people. Invest your small role-playing retirement in index funds. Index funds. Just... Hope against hope. Anyways, uh, in the Money Hut, there's so many things going on. Uh, we've already talked about dragon hordes and inflation, but there's another kind of inflation that's happening, which is the inflation of trading, that there's lots more trades are physically possible than used to be, because now they can be made by supercomputers that trade a million trades per second or something ridiculously high. And the question is, if a su- supercomputer is doing it too fast for people to follow, isn't that too fast for people to follow? Question mark. So <laughs> anything that is weird, mysterious, and powerful, as we mentioned with the dragon, is probably a villain. And that is why you don't say that about the banks. Banks are, you know, just simple, you know, low-level, street-level evil. But we maybe say that about the supercomputers or the daimons within the supercomputers and whether or not they are monkeying around with finances for some reason. Either way, it's normal now, Robin, which means scenario time. Right. So I I, uh, recently uh, watched a documentary, which I recommend because it makes an abstruse to the non-financial of us topic. Uh, kind of interesting and entertaining. It's called Money Bots. It's a documentary by Friedrich Moser and Daniel Andrew Wunderer. And uh, it covers this whole field, uh, not just of high frequency trading, which is its focus, but also covers the whole history of algorithmic trading, which again, turns out to be uh, more interesting than uh, you would have imagined. For example, the one of the pioneers of taking computer programs and teaching them to predict things on the financial market began with a group of physicists who in the 70s initially decided we can use physics to, in the 10 seconds when a roulette ball is in transit along the wheel, we can predict 
the one of eight places that will, it will possibly land and have time to place our bets if one of us is standing in front of the roulette wheel and another one has this little mini computer, uh, wearable computer hidden on his person where we have the same chips that just went into the first Apple home computer. And after a while, they thought, hmm, this is great and cool and we enjoy the math. But there's also a possibility that a character played by Joe Pesci will take us into the back room and break <laughs> our hands. You think? Yeah, let's let's try and use this power uh, for something uh, safer and perhaps even more lucrative than beating the house at Vegas 10% more of the time. And so over a period of, of many decades, the uh, power of the algorithm was used in various ways to predict the markets and give big financial concerns an edge. And this is, I think, fascinating in a, a number of ways. One of which you sort of suggested is sometimes you can have a bot running and then you lose connection with the bot and can't deactivate it. So it can be running without you while your internet connection is down and not necessarily uh, stopping when you want it to. So that introduces a, a potential for a great disastrous harm to befall you, if not the entire financial system. But what really struck me is something that brings this into the territory of this is normal now in the Yellow King role-playing game is high-frequency trading itself, which is fascinatingly parasitic. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. of course, it's not a literal biological parasite, although there are lots of those uh, on various pages of the Yellow King role-playing game. But it is a thought parasite, a, ma a mathematical parasite made real through math and computer programming, because what high-frequency trading does is it's all reliant on the speed of access that you have to the main stock exchange that you're dealing with. And so in a matter of milliseconds, if you are close enough to the main server, and there are all sorts of fascinating ways to get close enough to the main server, mm -hmm. you can detect that an order has been placed to buy a stock and sneak in there and buy a bunch of that stock just before the order is placed, but before it is fulfilled, therefore driving up the cost of the stock incrementally by a tiny amount, but enough that you make a little bit of skim on that transaction. So, of course, the putative point of the stock market system is to enable companies to finance themselves in order to do things, and where, of course, the real reason is to make phenomenally rich people phenomenally richer it's not an either or <laughs> right uh, but here there's no productive value of this at all it's right. pure rentierism right uh, and in fact it makes me think having seen some of the talking heads in this documentary perhaps some of them own a copy of second edition champions i'm just getting <laughs> getting, just that, getting that whiff yeah yeah a little bit so this is what i think makes it a cool idea for the source of some weird creeping thing because what if these very economically written little programs have another side to them. What if, in fact, they are serving uh, the king in yellow or Camilla or Casilda and that the uh, money that they are uh, draining from the system as a sort of a volunteer tax agent in the middle of the transactions is going somewhere or doing something or transforming us as because it's basically it, it's a meme that just steals a little bit of money every time. And it's a tiny amount of money. But if you do it enough times, you've, you've got something. Yep, there. And you got something. And uh, part of this, again, as I suggested, is physical proximity to uh, the servers of whatever stock exchange that you're working off of. And those servers are not actually in Frankfurt or London or New York, but they're usually 
you know, just a little bit outside of them. And to get to the spoiler part, sometimes it's all about setting up a shortwave radio network in order to get the information faster than other people have it. Uh, because it turns out that good old-fashioned shortwave radio is faster than fiber optic cable. Mm-hmm. And so there's people buying up these old radio towers that you would think, oh, yeah, that's an obsolete thing. Nobody, oh, no, but it's faster than fiber if you uh, sequence them properly. But the real jackpot is to somehow wangle your way in so that you're part of the server farm that serves that particular stock exchange along with Amazon and Google. They've all managed to wangle themselves in, in there, I'm sure, for entirely coincidental, non-sinister, non-king and yellow reasons. Uh, but they're all in there. And, and if you... So this may just, in fact, be a cover for good old-fashioned collusion. That if you <laughs> know a guy who knows a guy, you can get your computers set up in the actual server complex and get the information uh, faster. And you can rake some of the money off the system. And I can't imagine that that money would then... Any of it would go to the people who let you put your servers along with all the other servers that couldn't possibly no they uh, just did that in 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 the name of greater efficiency of transactions robin they right they didn't have a a personal stake in this why would anyone get their beak wet merely because trillions of uncountable literally dollars are splashing past them that that would violate all we know about human nature yeah so uh let's turn this then into a scenario and a scenario with the king in yellow in it and with horror in it and i think Often, I think it's somewhat of a cliche to start a a scenario with a murder that the heroes have to investigate. But we're talking money here, people. Mm -hmm. We're talking the financial system. I think it's entirely worthy and necessary, in fact, to start with some fresh-faced computer algorithm writer who possibly was, oh, let's say, dabbling with the occult the way that most of the people who set up the early Internet were and uh, then got himself a Brooks Brothers suit. Uh, went to Wall Street and uh, the putatively ordinary people of a This Is Normal Now uh, series then discover this person, who maybe they have a connection with, uh, is dead in some weird, horrible way. And uh, and can uh, what could they, the murderer possibly be trying to cover up? I mean, I, well, let's just start out by uh, normally it's very hard to figure out why they care about the guy. But if you establish that the guy, as you say, has a yen for the occult and the strange, he was college roommates with one of our heroes. He's the guy that, you know, was a super bright uh, math quant, went into Wall Street right away. But he's been funding their investigations for the last little while. And it's, how can we get to New Mexico in time to stop this thing? Us baristas and cannabis dealers. Oh, my buddy at, at Goldman, he's just bought us tickets because he knows how important our investigation is. And all he wants to know is, you know, what we found out because he's curious about the king in yellow, just as we all are. And you get the notion that, oh, this is our Bruce Wayne. This is our guy who just, you know, buys everything that we need for our investigations. When he turns up murdered. Yeah. Now you've got a, a reason to look into it. And of course, what he's been doing is he's been assembling their investigations to try and investigate the role of Carcosa in Wall Street, because, of course, you're talking about abstractions of ones and zeros, which means it could be anything. It could be a picture. It could be a song. It could be a play. It could be any kind of a thing. And so there are patterns of trades that are being done, not in this case to make vast sums of money, although they are also making vast sums of money, but in order to create a specific wobble in the trading in the way that if you super buy up a, a stock 
it rises. And if you short sell a stock, it, you hope, you know, you're hoping to drive it down and they're making these wobbles in the stock market so that from the proper steganographic viewpoint, it's a portrait of the, you know, pallid mask or it's Casilda or whoever your, your big bad is. And basically it is the attempt to reify, let's say her, cause it, let's say it's Casilda in control of everything financial to give her into her gift is the entire economic stream of the world, not just of America. And so he's stumbled onto this activity, which the reason he notices is because sometimes those trades are made against interest. It's not a thing. It's not just a thing where, oh, they're just trying to make a billion dollars by getting in a microsecond early. They're actually losing money by doing this. What's that about? And that's what got him curious. And so uh, rather than it necessarily being the gigantic, horrible captain of industry type bad guys, you've got sort of another scruffy trader unit that is figured it out and is basically doing this. I mean, they're scruffy, but they're, um, uh, they, they've still got a billion dollars to play with, but they're not, you know, the sort of kings of this world. They're inviting in the kings of the next world, right? Yeah. Right. They're the hackers from Mr. Robot rather yeah. than the, uh, their corporate enemies. Right. And- I think we're clearly moving into, you know, Mr. Robot goes Carcosa mm-hmm. uh, here. Uh, this will enable, of course, the characters to experience the true paranoia of the, the really terrifying uh, people in the world, which is people with money. Yep. And so they, they can have all of your trappings of your uh, black SUV uh, special forces. They have their ninja people with their sniper rifles. They have their surveillance. They have all of those things that will uh, genuinely... Uh, scare the players because they're they have their fingers in every everything and you don't know who owns who you don't know uh who's working for which side and uh ultimately you know will the player characters themselves be tempted to sort of at the end of the day do you well do we now that we don't have our benefactor do we divert these funds uh from this account where we watch the little bar go to 100% while we wait for the ninjas to come at us? Do we move that into our own accounts or is that just going to result in our uh, being traced? Is it possible that electronic money that doesn't even have a physical component, can it be cursed? Is there such a thing as Carcosa coin? Right. Do we dare touch this money if it's been used to create this warp in financial reality? Is this, in fact, just a way of trying to bring about a, a warp in all reality? Because, of course, what is more real in the early 21st century, uh, realer than uh, the climate, uh, realer than politics. Well, it's money. And so if they're attempting to destabilize the financial system, are they trying to just drop our civilization back by a thousand years so that we're more easily conquered? Or will, uh, in fact, a certain series of financial equations unravel the world entirely and allow uh, magic to come into being? So there's uh, all sorts of stakes Perhaps there's a dragon in the algorithm, for all that we know. Yep. Uh, perhaps the, the name of the uh, high-frequency trading program is Tiamat, or Dayhack. And uh, there might just be a, a dragon in the uh, Lake of Holly assisting the King in Yellow in uh, bringing about the end of the financial system. And do you want to save the current financial system? <laughs> it's a horror game, so you probably can't introduce your uh, Occupy Wall Street utopia at the end. It's a question of... You know, if you're going to make a deal with the, with the financial devil, how big a deal do you want to make? So I'd make sure that at the end, there's a big dangling temptation there uh, for the uh, for the characters. And do they just let all that imaginary money just fly away or do they take a little taste of it? Because you can't it's OK to be one percent 
you know, just, yeah. just skim a little bit off the top, just like the high frequency traders do. No one will miss it. Exactly. So I think that that gives us the, uh, the outlines of a beginning and an ending to the scenario and uh, leave that for you, the listener, to fill in the middle as we uh, head across this financial river uh, to the server farm on the other side. The best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Bribe the apocalyptic dragon so he doesn't breathe on this show. Joining such prudent backers as... Mark Kevin Hall. Michael Manivel, Phil Bailey. Robbie Carlton. And Ruth Tillman. Well, we promised a few weeks ago that we would do it. We're going to do it. It's Ken's Bookshelf, the New England Book Raid, Part 2. Uh, as we mentioned in a previous uh, segment, Ken, you finally got out into the wild. The wild, in this case, uh, being New England. And uh, you found a bunch of books. And everybody knows the drill by this point, uh, so let's just get right to it uh, with the second part of uh, your stack of loot. And that begins with Neither Cargo Nor Cult, Ritual Politics and the Colonial Imagination in Fiji by Martha Kaplan. And the subtitle, I think, is telling us uh, that this is a respectable work of scholarship. This is very respectable. This is take your hat off and sit down. Martha Kaplan is engaging the uh, what is called the, now the Tuca cult, which was a political rebellion against the British with a religious edge, which I think is the same as all rebellions against the British, including ours. But a oracle priest named Navosavakuda in the 1880s rallied up the Fijians to toss the British out. That worked not particularly well, and it has been sort of retro-explained as one of the earliest examples of the cargo cult. And not to get all cargo cult here, but the cargo cult is great. I recommend reading everything you possibly can about it. Martha Kaplan's argument is not necessarily that this is not a collision between modernity and tradition, which is what cargo cults basically are. Certainly, argues that Navo Savadkuda had a religious, possibly apocalyptic end in mind. All true. But her question is, how did that play out? How did that play out? Did the people in the Tuca movement see themselves 
as trying something magical or was it simply part of their lived experience the way that if you or I rebelled against the hated British, we wouldn't be saying, oh, that was a Lovecraftian cult that went against the British. No, we we just opposed the British. That's all. And so there is a question of the British local response was different than the British response was later. It, it's all about how these two sort of uh, civilizations slam into each other and then inevitably intermingle change and alter each other and each other's perception of each other. So it's, it, it's a drill down, if you will. It's very, very uh, grown up, many footnotes, much oral histories, very strong. It kind of fun ruins the Tuca cult in a big way. So warning, um, but it is uh, absolutely an important sort of a document to have in mind because all of the, even the more standard cargo cults, Obviously, once you drill down into them, they stop being sort of fun, crazy magic time and start being, you know, revolutionary politics time. And then you drill farther down and it is a lot of what makes the world go around. Is it power? Is it God? Is it something? How are those interrelated? And those are basically questions that every human society has dealt with since, you know, ancient Egypt. So to single out the cargo cult is a little reductive, although it is admittedly great fun. So we previously established that if you see a book on T.E. Lawrence and it is affordably priced, it goes in your pile. And this it time does. we have two of them. Uh, we have T. Lawrence to his biographers, edited by Robert Graves and Little Hart. And then we have the letters of T.E. Lawrence of Arabia, edited by David Garnett. I think we know what the letters probably are, and mm-hmm. it would be uh, very useful if you're uh, dealing with with his uh, life story, but the uh, first one, I think, requires further elucidation. Both Robert Graves and Liddell Hart wrote biographies of Lawrence, Graves as a poet and Liddell Hart as a soldier. Oh, so it's not Robert Graves. Yes, it's the Robert Graves. Uh, He was buds with T. Lawrence, was, was a big booster of him, and these are basically Lawrence's letters to them, their letters back to him, their sort of, you know, how did we take this gigantic figure and turn him into a biography. And what was his response to that? So it's, it's super interesting if you want to know more about Lawrence's sort of personality. And then it's also, of course, got Robert Graves in it, the Robert Graves, as you point out. So that's a twofer as far as I'm concerned. Liddell Hart is, is fine, I guess, but he's definitely the, the Zeppo in this crowd. And there's only three of them. So imagine that you're the Zeppo in a three man team, but it's, yeah, it's sort of that, you know, how does Lawrence respond to being biographized? And it's the sort of thing that, again, much like the uh, Cargo Cult book, you have these assumptions and then you drill down and, oh, no, it's it's human relations. So it's it's although this is not fun ruining because you cannot fun ruin Robert Graves. He's too fun. Right. So if hypothetically a patron backer wanted to ask for a segment uh, in which you riff on T.E. Lawrence and Robert Graves solving triple goddess related mysteries, you would be helpless to say no. I would literally be unable to do that in a plausible fashion. Yeah. Uh, next, we come to the Flat Pack Bombers, the Royal Navy and the Zeppelin Menace by Ian Gardner. That is a book about the plan by the Royal Navy to build bombers capable of bombing Zeppelins on the ground. Uh, the Zeppelin, as you know, was a menace. At the time, the Zeppelins could cruise over England and drop bombs, and there was nothing anyone could do about it. Uh, This was bad for morale, although they couldn't carry enough bombs to make it bad for anything else. So Churchill decided they should start building planes that could bomb the Zeppelin yards, and they didn't have aircraft carriers, so they had 
ships that had a flat deck and they packed the bombers like Ikea furniture in flat pack. They sailed out into the North Sea as far as they could go. They built the bomber on the deck and then it took off to bomb Germany. This sort of thing that Winston Churchill came up with on the regular, and in this case, it <laughs> well, actually... Well, he did have a bunch of Allen keys on hand, so yeah, right, I need to yeah. get rid of them. It, it was big Allen wrench supported this. Uh, so this is the story of, of that first 1914 and I think early 1915 campaign against the Zeppelin yards. Uh, obviously, by 1917 and 18, Britain has heavy bombers that can fly from England to Germany, and you get the famous raids on the Zeppelins in those days. But this is that first era when they are inventing the bomber and the aircraft carrier and the amphibious uh, bombing raid all at the same time. So it's 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 quite a thing. Um, it's a very straightforward book of military history. Nothing super fancy about it one way or the other, but it's about a legitimately fascinating thing from a military industrial point of view, even without the words Zeppelin menace, Robin. <laughs> And there isn't a movie about this? This seems like a, a glaring omission. As always, Hollywood, and in this case, whatever British Hollywood is, have uh, let us down as a people. Next, we have Lost Lions of Judah, Haley Selassie's Mongrel Foreign Legion, 1935-41, to by Christopher Othan. And uh, alert viewers may remember Christopher Othan as the author of the book about Katanga that I think I mentioned during a previous bookshelf. Christopher Othan in this case, has taken on the non-Ethiopians who came to fight for Haile Selassie against Mussolini. And you think, oh, good, it's Rick Blaine. Rick Blaine was literally the best put together of all of these guys because in 1935, Hitler thought Mussolini was a jerk who was keeping him from being able to take over Austria. So a lot of these guys are Nazis going to help out Haile Selassie. Some of them. <laughs> That's a special kind of fun ruining. Some of them are communists. There's two black American pilots who hate each other, um, uh, the Black Eagle and the Brown Condor. Uh, they have a gigantic rivalry. Speaking of things which should be movies. Exactly. And uh, Haile Selassie only gets like, you know, maybe an overstrength company worth of foreigners to fight for him because the League of Nations has imposed a, a ban on any foreign fighters in Ethiopia uh, the theory being, well, Italy will, you know, oh, we're foreign. We should leave uh, and that'll solve it. <laughs> Footnote, the League of Nations was wrong. Um, but Haile Selassie desperately needed League support against Italy. So he agreed not to import foreign mercenaries. There was lots of people who wanted to go fight Mussolini in Africa in 1935. And only the craziest ones kept going despite the League of Nations and Haile Selassie saying, please don't come and fight. And these are the, this is the story of those crazy people. Right. So player characters. Exactly. Except hopefully this, not the Nazis. This is a, this is a gonzo trail of Cthulhu campaign in the making, complete with god awful human evil in the person of Graziani, uh, one of the heads of the Italian invasion who just committed war crime after war crime after war crime, didn't even care awful, awful person. You think of the Italians as the hilarious bumbling comic relief of the Axis, but in 35, they're out there being just as bad as anybody else. And so you combine that with these genuinely god-awful people fighting them. That's a Trail of Cthulhu scenario as far as I'm concerned. Uh, next, we come to Yanagi, the secret underwater trade between Germany and Japan, 1942 to 1945 by Mark Felton. This is a book where the subject matter, I think, is more exciting than the book is. The book is very earnest and complete, and it gives you 
names and sailing dates of all the submarines that went from Germany to Japan, bringing valuable uh, technology for Japan to turn into their planes and, and whatnot in exchange for raw materials that the Japanese would supply. And if you think you probably can't supply an entire war machine by submarine from two thirds of the way around the world, you are now smarter than Hitler. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but it also we all aspire to that. <laughs> we do just aim, aim high people. Yeah. But, but the sort of propaganda and diplomatic uh, stakes of the trade were high enough that it kept going, and you would occasionally see individual people be smuggled back and forth, such as the Japanese ambassador to Germany would go back and forth on on a submarine. And so this, again, is basically every World War II horror movie starting, is something's leaving Nazi Germany on a submarine, something bad happens to it or it gets turned over to the Japanese, and that's why you have your... A Nazi robot ape uh, running around in the Philippines or whatever it is that you want to have. And uh, so it, it's just good f factual substrate for that. Mark Felton is is not a particularly engaging writer, but he has done more well, research on it than anybody. Apes. He did leave out the robot apes, and that's really on him. So there we are. Right. Uh, never let it be said, Ken, that just because you finish a project, you stop buying books for it. And that brings us to 1968, The World Transformed, edited by Carol Fink, Philip Gassert, and Detlef Juncker, and I assume this is a collection of essays about that pivotal year. It is. Basically, at the time that this book came out, which is 1998, that was the 30th anniversary of the 68, and a lot of people had been talking about the various things that happened in 68. Prague Spring, the May 68 in France, uh, the American uh, post-Kennedy, post-King riots, all of that, but they had not, you know, sort of said... Maybe there's something going on everywhere. And so this is an attempt to, with individual essays, talk about what's happening on a larger scale globally in 1968. So you have, you know, a, a whole section on uh, Tet and Prague. You have a whole section on domestic uprisings. You have a section on the sort of impossible protests uh, like the May 68. And the argument being the Black Panther, Black Nationalist movement, similarly uh, utopian and impossible in the same way that the uh, Situationist Rebellion in May 68 was. And so this is an attempt to sort of draw a world cultural, if not world historical, line between all of these disparate bits of 1968. And now, does it succeed? Not really. Uh, it's a ridiculous project. There's no such thing as a global biorhythm. But on the other hand, the, the world was very connected in 1968 in a way that it was not even in the 30s, the last time the whole world seemed to be going all a kilter. So maybe. Anyway, the individual essays are all very good. And to the extent that it was possible in 1998, they're, they're pretty straightforward. I think that it's would be more interesting to read this same bunch of essays if it had been written after uh, the 2008 collapse and the rise of China. I think that would have been a, a much more interesting bunch of books about 1968. It, it's being written from the sort of Fukuyama-esque end of history. You know, what do we know? Stroking our chin. And the fact that 1968 is, is always uh, with us. I'm so nostalgic for the end of history. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, it, but it's all very strong, uh, obviously very political because it's a bunch of sociologists rooting for communists. So what are you going to do? But it's a good book and it's, and it's, it's got a lot of, uh, of meat and teeth in it. I 
mostly picked it up because I'm running Fallout Delta Green, but I won't say that the individual chapters weren't interesting as well. Uh, next, still in a Delta Green uh, sort of area, we come to the Phoenix program by Douglas Valentine. And Douglas Valentine, a uh, just absolutely top-notch, left-of-center uh, investigative historian, as I've said many's the time and oft, uh, if you want to run a horror game, find something written on that topic by an angry leftist, and you are good to go. And the Phoenix program is about, obviously, the Phoenix program, which was the program by which American special forces, often amplified by CIA contractors or by local South Vietnamese fighters, went around and shot communists in the head. And in additionally, shot mayors of villages that were too nice to the communists in the head. And that, of course, is where we begin to say, who are you shooting in the head and who are signed off on this? And was there a form you had to fill out? And it turns out <laughs> they filled out their blood simple form, right? Like like many government programs to have started as, you know, uh, one idea and morphed into whatever the contractor wanted to do on the ground. Um, Phoenix program certainly had a major impact on the Viet Cong cadre, you know, basically knocked it out by a third by 1968, 69, 70, which is when Phoenix is getting going. It's probably too late. <laughs> I mean, if, if you'd had something like this in 1956, maybe, but, uh, certainly by 1968, you're, you're fighting the last war. In this case, the war you decided not to fight because you decided to fight the Vietnam War instead. Um, and Douglas Valentine, of course, is also against even shooting, uh, very, very bad communists indeed in the head because, as I say, he's a lefty. So, um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a good book. It's very in depth. It, uh, digs around and finds a lot of embarrassing admissions by people who are in charge of it or ran it or were part of it. it it's argument is Phoenix program bad. I think we can all agree Phoenix program ineffective. And, uh, it's super good if you are looking to do a follow Delta green thing in Vietnam, because your player characters are either going to be a part of a Phoenix team because you have to go shoot mythos guys in the head, or you're going to be reported as a Phoenix team by everyone they meet in the, in the country. So best to know who you are or who you are being mistaken for. Right. And, and if you know a little too much about either the Phoenix program or certain uh, ancient manuscripts, uh, you could be targeted to be shot in the head. You could be. Someone could fill out your name in that form. And then uh, we come to Undead Uprising, Haiti, Horror, and the Zombie Complex by John Cousins. This is, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say what this book is exactly. It's basically a historiography of the zombie, but it is a politically and culturally driven historiography because the big pieces of zombie historiography are things like our buddy Willie Seabrook's The Magic Island and Live and Let Die by Ian Fleming and even more so the movie made from Live and Let Die. Likewise, Serpent in the Rainbow. So it's very much about cultural depictions of the zombie and the way that that interplays with and interfaces with the actual political history of Haiti from call it 1920 to now, although he goes back and interrogates the Bois Camon uprising in 1791 that began uh, the, or 1794, whatever it was, that began the Haitian Revolution. So he goes backwards into Haitian history, just like Seabrook and, um, uh, and, and the other sources do. It's not the only book to read about zombies. It's maybe not even the second book to read, but it's definitely a book to read to 
contextualized a lot of this stuff. And it's just a, a physically beautiful book. Very well designed, uh, super usable and readable. Can't say too many nice things about the MIT Press of all people. Uh, someone at MIT Press is a frustrated artist and should be, if, if you're them or you know them, you know, buy them a donut. They, they've earned it, I'm sure. It's just a terrific looking book. It's great. Very highly recommended. Well, uh, depending on how you uh, choose to count things, uh, we are either 75% of the way through your pile or halfway through the second half of your pile. So that suggests it's time for us to uh, check in with uh, one of our beloved sponsors and then come back for the second half of Ken's Bookshelf. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing and we're back not far away from the previous uh, book with The Living and the Dead, Slaying Vampires, Exterminating Zombies by Gregory A. Waller. Yeah, this is, you know, I, I was looking at my at my pile the other day, preparatory to doing this segment, and looking at this one right after Undead Uprising was sort of a, a, a punch in the teeth. Nothing against Gregory A. Waller. The, in, the interrogation that he intends is, what about the people in vampire and zombie movies. And he derives zombie movies from vampire movies because, of course, uh, Night of the Living Dead was meant to be a remake of I Am Legend and Romero famously couldn't get the rights, went on his own direction. But the argument is, what do these vampires and or zombies say about the people that involve themselves, about their slayers, their victims, and the society that they find themselves part of? Which is a terrific question, and I have had that question many times while watching horror, uh, hammer horror films. You know, what is this small town actually doing? There's a lot of people that just seem to die in it with no one caring. Lots of good questions to ask about. Waller wrote the book in 1986. This is a uh, second edition, which has like, hey, people still care. Good for me. And so he misses uh, near dark and fright night. So he misses sort of the, the, the last great vampire movies of the eighties. It, it's more of a survey and less of an interrogation than you might like. It's, it's fine, but it's, 
it, it's not uh, essential at all, sadly. Next, we come to uh, a gatherarium, as it were, The Element Encyclopedia of Vampires by Teresa Chung. The Element Encyclopedias are reliably good to great, and they are also reliably pretty cheap. So if you see the Element Encyclopedia of X uh, on sale, probably pick it up. It'll be a, a, a perfectly sound, good enough for gaming sort of reference. It's not, you know, it, it, they don't drill deep. This is not Gordon Melton's vampire book, but it is a pretty good encyclopedia of vampires. This is an element encyclopedia. I have other element encyclopedias. I picked it up. It's again, they're also very pretty. The, the They make them for sort of the casual user and the casual user likes pictures. So there's lots of lovely pictures. The book design is fine. It's just a good book. Good, good encyclopedia of vampires. You'd feel like a, a churl if you have other vampire encyclopedias and not this one. That's my theory. Now we're going back into academic subtitle territory with Dreams and the Invisible World in Colonial New England, Indians, Colonists, and the 17th Century by Anne-Marie Plain. This one was a hard one to figure out where to put, because as you say, this is a grown-up subtitly book. Maybe should have been up there with the cargo cultists. But what it basically is, is a history is a little bit too strong because it's not like everyone in 17th century America was keeping a dream journal. And uh, the Indians, obviously, were not keeping dream journals at all. They were being asked about their dreams by a bunch of Puritans. So their dreams are uh, invariably Christianized at best. The best anthropologists then or now can't get outside their own mental framework when they're talking to other people. So... The records are spotty, but the records are also very unexamined. And in a world where both cultures, both Puritans and Indians, believe very, very strongly in the power and import of dreams, it's weird that no one has talked a lot about it. And that was Anne-Marie Plain's thought. So this is obviously grist for your uh, Cthulhu mill because you've got your, you know, Arkham. What's Who's dreaming in Arkham? And if you can't, you know, those these questions are vital to, I would say, any sort of Lovecraftian colonial exploration. And uh, should I write a third tour to Lovecraft book? I think dreaming would have to be one of the topics, and this would be a core text for that. Uh, next, we have Lord Halifax's Ghost Book by Charles Lindley Wood, the second Viscount of Halifax. And that is uh, the father of the Lord Halifax you're thinking of, who uh, did not get the chance to sell Britain down the river to the Nazis because Churchill uh, boxed him out in 1940. Charles Lindley Wood spent a good amount of his aristocratic free time listening to and looking into ghost stories. He was not necessarily a psychic investigator. He was just a guy who cared a lot about ghost stories. And it was published, I think, after his death. His he, and he, This is basically his scrapbook of cool ghost stories. And the question is, what can you make of it? Well, nothing really, because it's not folklorist study, but what it is, is a moment in time of ghost stories that appeal to or were heard by uh, this uh, powerful aristocrat. And it's, it's, it's fun for your Victorian flavor. It's fun. It's a fun collection of ghost stories um, because they're the sort of, they are folkloric ghost stories in that they're not narrative ghost stories. They're all you know, uh, and then the maid disappeared type stories, not anything important or not anything, you know, tied off with a narrative bow, but they show that sort of middle ground between authentic folklore and things you say when Charles Lindley Wood, the second Viscount of Halifax is listening. 
and it's a it, it's a fun little book of ghosts and it you know the connection obviously to his son is irresistible the notion that you know in in between not being prime minister of england he has to deal with his dad collecting ghost stories it's kind of a fun <laughs> moment i think next we come to phantom armies of the night the wild hunt and the ghostly processions of the undead by Claude Lecouture. This is a book that I think we've talked about Claude Lecouture before. He seems to be a real French scholar doing real scholarship in real France, but his publishers are, I forget if it's Baron Company or it, it's one of the people who, when Llewellyn turns you down, this is who you go to. So what's going on with that? It may just be that his, you know, American translator really cares about Lekatu and can't get anyone else to care. And uh, Lekatu in this, as he does most of his books, he is doing a, a very reductionist. All these stories are reflections of this one thing, this one specific tradition and this one specific tradition only. He is sort of a throwback in that way, anthropologically, which may, I guess, explain why he's turning up in Bear instead of in MIT Press. But... uh this is an, another one of those, and it's about, of course, the, the famous wild hunt and uh, the notion of the, the armies of, of ghosts that you see sometimes in uh, both historical record and, I guess, now. And next we come to Evil Archaeology, Demons, Possessions, and Sinister Relics by Heather Lynn, Ph.D. And is the fact that the Ph.D. is part of the uh, credit indicative it is uh this is a phd in education and i mean no disrespect to anyone with a phd in education to say this does not give you any particular credibility when talking about archaeology <laughs> nor is her master's degree in archaeology nor even her undergraduate degree in archaeology but she got into demons uh heather lynn is apparently a fixture on coast to coast am and all kind of other uh, I'm sure she's got a podcast now because everyone does. So this is very indicative. This is literally a Gallimaufry. The type is enormous. The font is enormous in it. And it's just a bunch of sort of what are demons? Uh, here's what Sumerians thought about demons. Here's what the Greeks thought about demons. Here's a bunch of stories people have told me for no reason. And then it gets into sort of Ripley's Believe It or Not territory where it's just this is a haunted mirror. No details, no way to interrogate it. There is one story that she tells and then says, it turns out this story is a made up internet legend that this, the, the haunted mother statue, uh, haunted mother goddess of Lemb, uh, is not a real thing. There's a real mother goddess. She's in Cyprus. No connection to the haunted mother goddess. And it's that one moment of skepticism in this otherwise open, <laughs> wide and swallow it book that is more interesting than anything in the book itself, I find. I, I can't in, in good conscience recommend it. It, it. All the demon stuff is somewhere else. The list of, uh, you know, uh, haunted items and cursed archaeological digs is no better or worse than you could assemble yourself. Just uh, a real disappointment from Heather Lynn, PhD. One, one hopes that she will, you know, uh, uh, do better. She does explain in the afterward that she feels like a demon cursed her while she was writing the book, that she had a lot of very bad things happen. And maybe it was, it was a notorious, curse. notorious oversized font. Curse. Exactly. That's only one of them. And so maybe book more expensive would have been a better book if the demons hadn't gone after her. Uh, she mentions at, at one point in the book, having found a copy of Russell Hope Robbins Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology in a thrift shop as she was beginning the book and how excited she was to find it. And I had a, a moment of fellow feeling for her because I found my copy also in a thrift shop and she's worried that her copy had been possessed by a demon and that's what caused all of her problems. My copy does not seem to be possessed by a demon, or if it is, it's a demon that likes to sit on a bookshelf and read and not 
give me heart palpitations. So good for him. Right. Well, you've got so many books with demons in them that they all cancel each other. Exactly. It's the, to make the first move. The three stooges going through the door theory of demon possession. Yeah. Now, and next we come to something where a subtitle does not always indicate grown upness. The Lost History of the Little People, Their Spiritually Advanced Civilizations Around the World by Susan B. Martinez, PhD. And I I don't know what to tell you, people. Susan B. Martinez has a legitimate PhD from Columbia University. All I can say is this is a stunning indictment of Columbia University. <laughs> um, it's about magic little people. Right. Well, we've established it's the Ghostbusters University, Ken. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe she studied under uh, Egon Spengler. Maybe that's the thing. She, she goes all the way back to the, the tiny people in, you know, the Flores, the, the, the Homo Hobbitus. Uh, that's sort of her jump off point there from, you know, a sunken continent. Uh, she names it Pan instead of Mew, but it's the same basic continent. Talks about how they, you know, built all the, you know, uh, Pleistocene supercomputers with caves. Then they run around and they, they become culture heroes to everybody, just like dwarves and hobbits and elves do. Also, for some reason, they wore little red hats, and that's why Catholic cardinals wear little red hats. Oh, I was wondering why that was. It's literally that level. It, it, this book, if it were written in, um, you know, 1913 instead of 2013, you'd be like, all right, I buy it. Sure. Why not Susan B. Martinez? But it's just a, I mean, it's better than the evil archaeology book in that it has a thesis and an argument and it presents, well, evidence is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but it is, um, it is still just a, a, a staggering indictment of the good people of Columbia University, except obviously Egon Spengler, who was doing good work. And next we come to Hassan Isaba, Assassin Master by James Wasserman. I would wager not your first book on Hassan Isaba. Not my first book on Hassan Isaba, but you know what? my first ever biography of Hassan Isaba, and I believe the first ever biography of Hassan Isaba. And I know what you're going to say. He founded the assassins. Obviously anyone who studies him is some sort of weirdo. It's published by Ibis press. I can't deny any of this, but you know, uh, James Wasserman is the kind of guy who believes the Templars and assassins explain the world. Let's just get that out there. But he then believes isn't it incumbent on us to do the hard work of finding the actual medieval sources and learning them? So going from the wrong direction, ending up at the wrong place, but on the way through, you've got legitimate medieval texts in here. So uh, Rashid al-Din's 1310 biography of Hassani Saba in, in the appendix, translated in English for the first time. Maybe not by James Wasserman, maybe by a grad student James Wasserman knows. I don't know. So no... You cannot depend on this for how important were the assassins. I think, yes, you can depend on this for what do we actually know about Hassani Saba? So in a lot of ways, this could go down on the medieval history shelves. Obviously, it's not. It's staying up here in Elliptony. But, you know, big ups to James Wasserman. He does his best. Right. And so the listener will note that Ken has stacked the books in order of ascending woo. Uh, so that makes me wonder about... Financial Vipers of Venice by Joseph P. Farrell. Joseph P. Farrell, uh, I believe, again, longtime listeners will remember him as uh, one of the top scholars of Nazi UFO alchemy magic and the conspiracy of the moon. <laughs> the thing I love about Joseph P. Farrell is that all of his books are written in outline form and he stops every few pages to say, now, what have we learned? So if you want to read them fast, 
and get sort of the skinny Joseph P. Farrell. He's not one of those guys to bury you in, in blather. And uh, he is very much this proves this proves this proves this. Now, all of his data are suspect, to say the least. This one is uh, subtitled Alchemical Money, Magical Physics and Banking in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Joseph P. Farrell, as so many people do who start off in the simple, happy-go-lucky world of Nazi aerospace conspiracies, has now decided it's all the evil banks doing it. And I think that we all know what that's shorthand for. Uh, so yes, it's, it's <laughs> the theme we want to avoid in right. the aforementioned bank episode, the financial algorithms right. uh, scenario. Now this is from Feral House, who are who are good people who publish dangerous uh, stuff, and it it does not take the mask off in the in the text of this book, as far as I'm able to tell. This is, you know. This is attempting to have your cake and eat it too by saying, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not saying Jewish bankers are evil. I'm saying all bankers are evil and most bankers are Jewish. That's, and he, and right now he's talking about Italians. So who could get mad at Joseph P. Farrell? Well, obviously everyone should get mad at Joseph P. Farrell, but this has got a lot of sort of accelerated and accented for fun and conspiracy discussion of the Venetian banking system and the degree to which it may or may not have been involved with magic. So again, maybe if you're running that fiscal Carcosa, this is a place to look. Maybe it's not a place to look. You have to judge by yourself. We are out on the thin ice uh, with this book. We're not falling through it, but I won't argue if you want to stay closer to the shore. And uh, finally, as we talk about Ascending Wu, we come to Secret Machines. Of course, that's secret with a K. Gods, Man, and War, Volume 1. And I guess that and then volume two. And so volume one is God's God's man in war. Right. And volume two is man, God's man in war, because there's nothing about a salubrious subtitle uh, when we're dealing with Tom DeLong and speaking of the people who are aforementioned, Peter Lavenda. Absolutely. And Tom DeLong, you will all remember as the uh, beloved uh, lead singer, I believe, of Blink-182, who has taken his rock star money and gone hunting UFOs with it. And, you know... Let's just take a moment. I think I've taken this moment previously to say, if I had Rockstar money, I don't give myself great odds of not going hunting UFOs with it. So there we are. <laughs> I, I hesitate to criticize Tom DeLong. Peter Lavenda, a weirdly non, non-make-em-up non guy for a guy who writes entirely about make-em-up stuff. Maybe he was he's trying to exorcise having written a pretend Necronomicon in the 80s. You know, we all did things in the 80s when we needed money. You will enjoy the fact that Volume One Gods has a foreword by Jacques Vallée, oh, wow. our friend of the show, Jacques Vallée, and it's basically a an attempt to sort of do a. You're a fan of Tom DeLonge, but you don't want to read a bunch of other books on UFOs. Maybe this will be the book on UFOs you want to read. So it's sort of a a primer is too simple and a summa is too complex for what it is, but it's somewhere in that in that space, and it's talking about the notion that there is a third force, something that is hidden from us, uh, namely the secret machines. And uh, the secret machine force is basically, it seems, what John Keel called the ultra-terrestrials. And so... Hence the Valet uh, introduction. Right. And so I feel like this is Peter Lavenda slowly trying to move Tom DeLong off the nuts and bolts ufology into the psychosocial ufology right well th that would be a service it would be a huge service and again i i want to be mad at peter lavenda i really do but i i his, his stuff just in the general realm of nonsense is so much better than the general realm of nonsense that i feel 
I feel almost a kinship with this guy. Well, unlike the Sully kids, you just can't stay mad at him. No, no, he's not. The, he, Peter Lavenda has done many bad things, I'm sure, in his life, but be a Sully kid, not one of them. Well, I think we, uh, Ken, you and I have had enough Sully kidding around. <laughs> it's time for us to close uh, another installment of uh, Ken's bookshelf and thus another episode of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. But we'll be back to talk about more similar stuff a mere seven days from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Put your ill-gotten stock gains to good use, keeping this show aloft alongside such beloved backers as... Ben Vincent. Chad Ward. Dan Simon. Neil Dalton and Steve Sigety wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin festoon yourself with our aforementioned design Foxy Dragon on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's at Robin D. Laws see you next time when once again we will talk about stuff <laughs>